Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Tokyo FinTech Podcast. Today, very excited to welcome Jenna from Malaysia. Hello, Jenna. Jenna. Hi, everyone. When you Google Jenna, you'll find her on many of the women in fintech lists, the top women in fintech, the top voices of fintech in Malaysia. And so it's a pleasure to have you here and get some insights about that ecosystem and your perspectives. First of all, you're a trained lawyer and you moved into fintech and now also cybersecurity if we could ask you to share a bit of your journey and how you made that transition and how you combine all these domains in making an impact. So I think starting out as a lawyer, it's very interesting because it starts from regulation and compliance. I think along the way, because I was also interacting with a lot of entrepreneurs, so I was very fascinated by how um, the use of technology and entrepreneurship solving key problems globally. And, and that's where I jumped into startup. And when I was doing pitching and I started dealing with different government entities that are trying to drive digital economy. So I was invited to actually join the fintech arm. And suddenly I was supposed to craft the strategy for fintech for Malaysia. So that was quite interesting journey. And my job has a lot to do with dealing with the regulators has a lot to do with dealing with international stakeholders. A lot of part of my task was also to deal with stakeholders and fintech ecosystem, for example, in the UK, San Francisco and Southeast Asia, Singapore, Thailand as well, Australia. So it's very interesting where from the compliance perspective and I understand technology and startup that contributed to, to fintech. I've never studied finance, but after I left, I got obviously offers from all the financial institutions and to join the finance world. And, and that was very interesting because it opens up to a, a new area in fintech. And obviously fintech made me jump to cybersecurity because I saw that a lot of what we do right now, it's linked to technology. And it has also become a norm that sometimes we do not understand the risk of being in, 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 in technology world or adopting it. And so the fintech strategy for Malaysia is a very interesting topic. Of course, your neighbor to Singapore, which has positioned itself a bit as the at least the ASEAN fintech hub. And so what does Malaysia's strategy look like? Is that cooperation, competition, cooperation? What's the Malaysia a unique value proposition? To give a bit of context, Malaysia is a country where it's between Singapore, Thailand and neighbours to obviously there's a sea in the middle with Indonesia, right? And Malaysia, it's around 30 plus million population. And it, it, there's also a lot of natural resources in Malaysia as well. Back then, it's a lot of mining and agriculture. So it comes from there. If you talk about digital economy and fintech, so my role was like maybe what, three, four years ago. So it's coming from the origin. And, and I think if you look at the strategy, it comes from three prong, right? One is the industry. One is the regulators, which crafts out the framework. And the third is the digital economy from the government arms. So I was in the digital economy part. I think every country has its natural strength. For example, Japan will have its natural strength. Technology is, is one of the key strengths of Japan, right? And innovation. So for Malaysia, it's uh, when I speak to regional players or international companies, they, they look at Malaysia as an interesting place to get data because of the diversity of the population. You have the high tier and then the middle class and then the low income group and also the B40 group where the bottom 40. So if you want to launch something in Southeast Asia and APEC, it'd be quite interesting for you to launch in Malaysia 
because of the diversity of the culture and also the language. For example, Malaysia deals quite a lot with Japan actually. And that's where a lot of, um, this is another interesting fact, I once wanted to apply to actually live in Japan. So I wanted to do a university or scholarship and it was an entrance exam style. So I take the application that I can't speak Japanese. I'm not fluent in it. But when I entered the exam hall, there were a few hundreds. And guess what? I was the minority. I was the 5% that are, we are not able to speak Japanese. And the rest of the participants actually were fluent and able to teach Japanese. So Malaysia is an interesting hub. There's a lot of diversity. Singapore is a very good financial hub because it rallies the global attention to the hub. And it's a financial hub where a lot of headquarters is based at. I think it's good because it's next to Malaysia where a lot of people, they either build their entity or their structure in Singapore or Hong Kong. And then they move and expand to Southeast Asia. So I think it's a very good synergy where Singapore is building as the financial hub in Southeast Asia. So that's a synergy that I'm looking at. And I believe Labuan, for example, is very well known as a place mm. to register like your insurance captive. The delegation from the Labuan Financial Center over here in Tokyo last year as well. That was something I, I wasn't aware of until that point. How many insurance companies actually have a registered presence there? I think Labuan gives a different perspective of becoming more international friendly. And, and obviously, it's quite interesting where Malaysia is a country where there's different jurisdictions. And you have also the West and the East side. So uh, interesting facts, if you are a lawyer and you're in Kuala Lumpur, the city side, the, the West side, I can't practice in the East Malaysia side. But the East Malaysia side can come over and practice. So it's, it's very interesting where Malaysia has different jurisdiction and, and laws as well. You also have Islamic law and Islamic court as well. And, and that's where, when you mentioned about Malaysia being, uh, what's the strength? I think one of the strength is uh, Malaysia is always top three globally in terms of Islamic finance. And a lot of people and, and different countries always look towards Malaysia in terms of yeah, Islamic finance governance and framework as well. And so when you look at the fintech ecosystem now, is there this line as well, like Western finance, Islamic finance type of startups? I think it comes from the need of the problem that they want to solve comes from that. I think it's also bearing in mind that for Malaysia, there's always the additional compliance in terms of Islamic finance. So I'm not an expert, but this is my basic understanding. For example, let's say there's a product um, on insurance called Takafu. So people like me and you, we, we are able to consume it because maybe we like the structure of the business model that Takafu was born. It's not about divining like that. I think it goes back to the need and also maybe your audience or, or the country or population that you're targeting as well. And also, let's say, going back and rewinding back into not just look at fintech, look at finance. So in Malaysia, for example, the banks are always structured into two different entities. For example, maybe Maybank and Maybank Islamic. At the back of it, there's always a group level and you share the infrastructure as well. And sometimes you share resources. So those are the functionality of it. But obviously, different products will be part in different entities. 
Understood. Thank you. Playing further on this consumer needs question, I mean, we're living in an age where technology really is abundant and universally accessible. So the technology itself doesn't make a difference anymore. So the factors that make a fintech successful or any other startup is really how they address the consumer needs and how successful they are in solving real problems. What are some of the good examples you see in Malaysia in that regard? I think Malaysia was quite interesting and it actually surprised me was it was one of the first countries that actually issued out the, the framework for equity crowdfunding and then other countries follow suit. So in, in that region, right? And that's by Securities Commission, Malaysia. So that was very interesting for me. And, and also lately, I think uh, we are also jumping into the virtual bank, new bank race. If you look at the framework, I think some of the, from my engagement with the regulators previously, there's an emphasis on financial inclusion. There's also an emphasis on Islamic finance as well. So it's, it's quite interesting where the regulation is shaped towards the need of the population rather than I issue out a very general framework and then I, I leave it to you to craft it. So it's very clearly cut and United Nations Development Fund is also headquartered in Malaysia as well. So they work directly with the regulators. So it's very good towards the needs of the population or maybe the B40 or middle class times. And a lot of people think that we should serve the unbanked. But now I think the conversation has navigated to underserved. So someone may have a SME bank account or a bank account, but why are they not using that? Are their financial needs not met in the day-to-day or day-to-day running the business? So we are looking into that right now, maximizing the filling up of their needs, uh, whether from an individual or SME or from a company perspective. So that's what we're looking at. So both the personal and the commercial side of yes. the fintech. Okay. Yes. You mentioned the neobanks. At what stage is that? Is the framework out? Are applications running? So the draft framework was issued last year. It was open for comment. And then they had another reiteration. I think it's building momentum. We see a lot of companies from all over globally reaching out and sometimes messaging on LinkedIn just to understand where this is, right? And we noticed that a lot of companies are also trying to position themselves right now, either to make known of the product or services in terms of being part of that race in Malaysia. Right now, application is not out yet. But I think they're trying to finalize it amidst of what's happening right now in in the COVID-19. Perhaps people are trying to ensure that there's financial stability. But we see a lot of movement on the ground from industry players and and corporates right now. And a, a fairly few announcements saying that they're actually interested to apply. So people are quite excited right now. And they're trying to learn the most right now. What is it? What is the nitty gritty about the new bank? What is it? You know, is it just an app? If it's just an app, I already have that on on my bank. Right. So your traditional banks obviously can have a digital offering already. So how do you actually differentiate yourselves? And comes back to the needs. What are the needs that are not filled? So banks, interestingly, do not need to apply because they already hold a license. But what they can do is they can craft a separate entity. And a lot of um, this is quite well known in the finance and banking world, but not in the public eyes that a lot of their core system are still on a legacy system. So perhaps one of the interesting trends that we looked at for banks is a lot of them also venture into other countries to start a whole new bank from scratch, either from the application or tax system or entity side. 
And so let's switch a bit to the cybersecurity side of things. Became a bit used to hacking incidents around the globe, right? Whether it's big corporations and 100 million of data sets being hijacked and all your account data being sold on the dark web or whether it's nation states engaging in this activity. So something seems to be fundamentally wrong. How are we going to fix that? I think with this COVID-19 as well, it has sped up the digital adoption. And at times we don't understand the underlying technology or some of the services and products that we use because we are trading convenience with our data and that is obviously not known in the beginning stage. So that's one. The second thing is the basic knowledge of using technology in our day-to-day lives. I think that is also not commonly known. For example, switching on your GPS and using the public Wi-Fi. All these little things are well-known maybe to the tech talents, but maybe not to the non-tech talents or users like me and you. Because all these users are also part of an organization and company as well. So could it be the system? issue? Could it be the user perspective where they don't understand the best practices to use this and access to the current framework of the organization or products? So all these little things also add up. And the other thing is there's always the long question about cybersecurity talent. I think we used to lack tech talent, software, API and developers, right? But right now I think we're moving on to security data, privacy, and governance. And also because there's also a lot of usage on things like, or focus on AI and machine learning as well. So how do we merge all that? And then you have the open API and open banking as well, where data exchanges are going to be uh, very frequent and high velocity. So in terms of cybersecurity, I think there is no one solution to fit all. And that's what we're currently focusing on, Port Ninja. We are currently building a platform and we are trying to be part of that solution on that. What is your offering with Fort Ninja? Cybersecurity, of course, as you said, is a very wide field. Yeah. Which subsectors you're focusing on? I, we are currently building a tech platform right now, but obviously before that, we're also running a few services and programs. Talent is something where we hold close to our heart. So we have something like called the eFintech School. It is free for participants. It's a one-month eFintech school for professionals. Anyone can join in, but we have a limited space. So we only have 100 places and it's targeted for APAC. So instructors are not academics. They're actually practitioners. They're either running an investor arm or they're from a bank or they're from a startup. So it really comes from there. It's backed by GHL, a payment company in Southeast Asia, and also AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services. So the key thing is the mission of this program is to break the barrier of fintech. And going back to cybersecurity, cybersecurity, it's not just in finance and banking. It could be in healthcare. It could be in defense. It could be in logistics as well. So the reason why we built programs like eFintech School is to get close to the industry as well and to also break the barrier of entering into fintech that links to tech and also security. That's how we look at things. Um, the other offerings that we have is we're also doing a lot of webinars and roundtable for industry players. So we recently did one on virtual bank and financial health. 
And the idea is to spread the knowledge for everyone so that when the time comes, for example, for Malaysia and the application is open or one of them is live, like how Hong Kong, um, the virtual bank or new bank is really live, people will be able to consume that with a better understanding rather than from scratch. So that's, that's what we're looking at. And the platform that we're building right now is to do with talent and the cybersecurity tasks as well. So that's what we are currently building right now. So whoever that is interested, uh, feel free to reach out to me. On the eFintech school, what's your target audience? Are you looking for more fin people, more tech people, or people who come completely outside of these domains? So interesting question. So people always ask us whether they can apply and we actually have no prerequisite. You do not need to study finance. You do not need to study tech. You can come from finance, you can come from tech, economy, even graphic design, anywhere actually, as long as you put in your application before 15th of June. There's a board committee that is structured. We are going to sift through the applications and pick out the best 100 applicants from all over APAC. So the idea is to give the best of the standard of instructors for you. It is up to you what you're going to do next. There is no bond, no fees. There's just a reimbursement model where you pay a small fee like 120 USD and then it'll be refunded to you after you complete the school. So it's a one month during July and it's after working hours. We are just a group of people that are passionate to want to build the long-term sustainability of this, of this model. Yep. I was thinking about the incentives, right? So the bond that you give, the $120, is the incentive to actually then stay with the program and get your money back. Yes. An interesting tip, I actually just completed an MBA and it's all done online. It's from Washington and they have a technology app, but they also build a community on Slack. So that's what they are trying to do and, and we are quite inspired by that. We are also very inspired by another case study in Philippines. So Union Bank, Philippines, was struggling uh, in terms of getting their own talent. Or, so they decided to create a program which is obviously more at, uh, longer and bigger than ours as a corporate. And they've run this, I think they, their first program, um, it's a six-month program. And it was so successful. They call out uh, applications, talents from all over Philippines, fly them over, provide lodging and everything for six months. And they thought that it was a very good success. They created a different entity, an academy for themselves. So they've done blockchain and I think they're moving on to different talents as well right now. It's great. I mean, also having 100 people from all across Asia, the diversity and the earnings that you can have across the different ecosystems is quite impactful. Yeah. So our key thing on the eFintech school, we're guided from inclusivity and diversity. It really doesn't matter about your age group, your background and industries. We want more diverse group that comes in to form the first alumni for both the instructors and also the participants. If you listen to this, the link to the application for the eFintech school is in the description of this podcast. You can apply by June 15th. Don't miss the deadline. When you look out now from a Malaysia perspective for the next five years, what is a good outcome for the country in terms of the development of the fintech sector? It's going to be quite interesting because Malaysia has a diversity of both culture and languages. So it's actually quite easy to find, let's say from Japan, you want to reach out to Malaysia and someone fluent in Japanese. And for Hong Kong, China, and even Indonesia, because Bahasa Indonesia and Bahasa Melayu is quite similar. It can be different, but we actually understand each other. It's like a different dialect, for example. 
I think leveraging on that and, and because I'm situated in the middle of everything, what's happening next to Singapore, Thailand and Indonesia, I think it's going to be quite interesting to see Malaysia solving some of the key issues, things like financial inclusion and enhance that. Not looking at unbanked anymore, we have moved on uh, because of what some of the regulators initiative on making sure that everyone has access to bank account. So I think that's one. The other interesting one will be definitely Islamic finance where it's targeted just for people who understand Islamic finance, but people who understand the principles behind that and the need. So that's, and the third one is definitely the SME part. So I think it'd be quite interesting for Malaysia to solve the SME needs as well. And that's where a lot of fintechs are starting to move towards that globally. Right. Part of the economy in Malaysia is the SMEs in terms of revenue or employment. I think right now, as we speak, it's definitely changing right now it's a whole mix you have the digital part but you also have the F&B part as well the retail part and you have the outskirts a bit like Japan because there's natural resources the agriculture comes in and also like fishing and, and all that so we used to do a lot of that but that has gone down and a lot of Malaysia's economy was driven by manufacturing as well and the good relationship with Japan at that time. So those are the things that traditionally we were based on. So I think moving forward, the question is how it's going to look in five years' time. I think technology will, will be playing a lot of role. And I think a lot of people are going to try out their different new skill sets to build new businesses. That's what we're looking at. And perhaps also exporting to other countries. So we may be crafting something or developing something in Malaysia and pushing it out to all over in APEC, for example. Perhaps because of the lack of language barrier and perhaps also the understanding of the culture as well in APEC. You really have a unique ecosystem that is Malay, Chinese, Indian, real melting pot across these three cultures. And if you can address all three of them, I mean, that's a huge ethnic population, right? That's like half the globe, basically, ethnically. Yeah, and, and also I think the other interesting thing is if you actually come to Malaysia as an expat or uh, you want to start living in Malaysia, you've got to be really careful the first three months because there's tons of good food. So a lot of people that I know, they always put on weight for the first three to six months because, for example, you actually get you can get good Japanese food there. You can get a lot of different good food from all sorts of culture. You just need to know where to look for it. And another Malaysian culture that we have is because of our love for food, we actually spend the hours traveling to go to the food area together as a road trip. So it's like a food trip. It's a very common thing. And it's also very rich because of the fusion of the, the food and and I think um, Japanese love watermelon and honey deal, I, I think. So we have quite a lot of that as well. So that, that's something very interesting where the fusion of the culture and, and what we love, I think, will be borderless soon. So I think we look forward, for example, to actually reach out to the Japanese community. Now we're told you did a good job marketing Malaysia as the destination. How is easy is it to start a business? So if you came over now and said, okay, we want to register a company, right? ultimately employ a few people and start yeah. developing a product. And as you said, then maybe re-import it back into Japan, but also across all of Asia. What's the ease of doing business? 
So the good part is the Companies Act was revamped. A lot of burdens of like reporting and the requirements are done and over with. There's an entrepreneur visa as well for those who want to go to Malaysia. Uh, it's quite easy. You can just actually go online. It's called SSM Malaysia or something like that. And you just can create a company. And you have 30 days or so to elect a company secretary. So it's quite easy actually right now. I think this has picked up over the past two years. So creating a company and doing business in Malaysia is fairly easy. There's also the ease of sometimes, you know, in some companies or in certain industries and countries, there's also over compliance. So I don't think Malaysia is there. There's governance, but there is no such thing as like over-compliance. So it's, it's going to be quite interesting for people who want to launch in APEC or Asia, Southeast Asia, to use Malaysia as a hub. And the availability of technical talent? It's quite a lot here as well. You just need to know where to find it. When I was traveling to Singapore, for example, because I frequent Hong Kong and Singapore for the FinTech Festival and Week, I think I found out that a lot of technical talents in Malaysia stay technical. They really like being technical and that's where maybe back in those days on the upper north of the West Malaysia, Penang, we have one of the best hardware guys globally. So that was um, maybe a decade or so back then. And in terms of, for example, some technical talents because of the industry, for example, like Singapore, some technical talents prefer to go to consultancy later on or events management or, or things like that. So, but the funny thing is because we also have technical team and they like staying in, in the technical area. So I think it'd be quite, there's quite abundance of technical talent. You just need to know where to find them. And there's a lot of um, different tech community depending on the language that you use as well. So we'll need some help, I think, when we get there. Not everybody speaks like all these three languages. So can English, of yeah. course, is a common denominator, but to get really deep bonds, you still need to have a better understanding of the culture and the language. Yeah, and that's where quite a lot of outsourcing hub, for example, I think it's for Standard Chartered. It's actually headquartered in Malaysia as well because of the diversity of the talent. Yeah, and I think it's probably been five or six years ago. So I think also City moved quite a few roles yep. from Singapore into KL. I mean, all of that contributes to a vibrant ecosystem, right? And it helps people understand, get some industry knowledge, understand what it means to serve global clients beyond their own borders. And so that's, these are all good steps that have been taken to strengthen the overall economy and the ecosystem. Anything else you'd like to cover? Any final comments, messages um, for our listeners? I'm quite interested to see how Japanese fintech and Japanese talents and companies go out right now. Because I remember when I was in Singapore, I think there is a pavilion where it's based on countries and Japan was part of it. Japan has always one of the top-notch technology and infrastructure. It's, it's always like a common thing where technology and, and making it a perfect state of art. That's, that's why I'm quite interested to also reach out to anyone who wants to expand out of Japan and happy to help and, and share as well uh, knowledge and insights within the region. It would be quite interesting to also share the technology advancement that is already existing in, in Japan. And for, for people from Japanese company or talents to expand out, you're also expanding your value to the people and population as well and solving key problems that may not be necessary for anyone to you know, start from scratch when Japan has reached that advancement. 
I think there's probably two vectors. One is that sometimes it's even for Japanese, it's hard to create a company here in Japan. I think you see quite a few Japanese founders establish their startup abroad. Mm -hmm. Vietnam is a perennial favorite. Mm -hmm. But what you described about Malaysia, I think, makes it equally attractive. It's like a little longer flight than Vietnam from Japan, but yeah. ultimately it's a question also of the talent and the market. And so yeah. So that's certainly a segment, I think, where Malaysia and Japan can get closer together. And the mm -hmm. second is then when you have a fintech startup or any startup that starts in Japan, which is obviously a very big market. So initially, they're very much focused on domestic success. And given that the fintech wave arrived a bit later in Japan, right, coming from the US to Europe, across Asia to Japan, yep. many of the startups are younger. But those at scale, I think last year, we've seen also several of them starting to hire business development people for the rest of Asia, for example, right? And so yeah. it's a second vector where when these companies stretching out, historically, there's always these, and we had this in Europe too for a long time, when you want to internationalize, you always think US first, right? It's a huge market. You want to be successful in America. And I think we're moving beyond that because there's this massive market right in front of us in Asia. That's like 60% of the world population, right? And why not tap into, and China is always a, a very different story, but yeah. tap into Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, there's huge populations, young populations, which are really growth markets. And I hope that kind of the focus shifts a bit to nearshore mm -hmm. rather than trying to be successful in the US. And, and also because Southeast Asia is also starting to ramp up. So they don't have a lot of these legacy issues or being addicted, for example, to their credit cards, right? I think one of the things that to look out for in terms of country and, and fintech adoption is how is the population attached to credit card or the lending products? For example, Indonesia, they, from what I learned from the industry players is there's no credit scoring uh, centralization right now. So it means that, you know, a lot of these population are now trying to build their credit and financial health and it's starting from scratch and they're actually starting with technology. So that's, that's the beauty of that. It's a super important point. It's like it's much easier to build something new than trying to overcome incumbents and fight vested interests and so on. Yep. So it's more of a greenfield build and all the options are open, which makes it super attractive, really. Wonderful. Great conversation. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Norbert. Thank you, Norbert, for having me. Thanks, Norbert. Take care. Very good. Thank you. Bye.